And good morning, everybody. It's great to see everyone. Uh, as Peter said, I'm Leslie Albany, Senior Vice President for Initiatives at the Cato Institute. And I am standing in as host this morning for my colleague Harrison Moore, our Vice President for Development, who is unfortunately under the weather and so cannot join us today. And uh, he sends his regrets and he's very bummed about it because we all love coming to Chicago. And so to be with so many of our supporters and dear friends, and so on behalf of all of us, as Peter mentioned, it is a privilege and a great responsibility to advance the principles of liberty, limited government, and free markets in Washington, DC, across the country, and around the globe. A free, open, and dynamic market economy not only produces incredible wealth and prosperity, but that it is a moral, it's morally just. Um, and uh, unfortunately, there are growing factions on both the left and the right who argue that free markets aren't delivering for American workers, society, or the environment, and that further government intervention and government spending is needed. Today, across the ideological spectrum, those who used to be with us to defend free markets have turned their backs. That is why it is more important than ever that we at Cato expand our influence of our economic and financial regulation policies to new and broader audiences. And that is exactly what my two Cato colleagues on today's program, Romina Baccia and Jennifer Schultz, do. They bring an, an approach to their issues that focuses on winning the long-term battle of ideas by also setting goals to achieve near-term tangible policy reforms. So first, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Romina Baccia. Romina Baccia joined the Cato Institute in August as Director of Budget Entitlement Policy and has hit the ground running. Romina is passionate about Cato's mission we know this because this is her second tour of Cato. Romina was an intern many years ago. All of you here today who support Cato make our internship program possible. So thank you for playing a part in developing future leaders like Romina. Romina is principled and explains complex topics and language people can understand. In fact, she's been called in the press an economist who speaks plain English. She is so principled, in fact, that a prominent Republican presidential candidate who shall remain nameless once tried to get her fired after she pointed out that one of this candidate's signature policy proposals may lead to cronyism and corporate welfare. So my takeaway there is that a presidential candidate was paying attention to Romina's work and felt so threatened by her commentary that he needed to act. Not bad, Romina, very well done. So we expect more of that at Cato. In early, <laughs> in early January, Cato will publish Romina's first policy brief titled A Fiscal Agenda for the 118th Congress. The goal is to provide Congress with explicit guidance for why and how to stop excessive spending and stabilize the debt to avoid a future fiscal crisis, reduce inflation, and increase economic growth. And she's been laying the groundwork for this policy brief to have impact on the Hill. Romina's goals at Cato are to analyze the federal government's unsustainable fiscal position, provide detailed libertarian reforms to policymakers, produce original research on the federal budget, and to reinvigorate our work on entitlement reform. 
We are delighted to have her on the team. So please join me in welcoming my colleague, Romina Baccia. Thank you. Thank you so much <clears throat> for this generous introduction, Leslie. And thank you for being here with us today. It is such a pleasure to be in Chicago, a city known for its industry, growth, and very, very tall buildings, I must say. Um, our US debt is too high and it's growing at an unsustainable rate. I'm not telling you anything new there, but the situation has worsened significantly, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic, where our debt level is now at such high levels where economists across the ideological spectrum have identified that debt at such high levels at 90% of GDP and growing from there is hurting growth, which is reducing opportunity and making it more difficult for American families to provide for themselves and their families, which in turn increases dependency on government, which then drives up further spending and the debt, and we enter a vicious cycle. The question then only is how will this cycle end? Because as you well know, what can't go on forever must eventually stop. Excessive spending during and also following the COVID-19 pandemic has truly been unprecedented. And I just wanna show you a quick graphic to put this in perspective. We know that every time uh, the, uh, the US faces a crisis, the uh, federal government will resort to emergency spending. Sometimes that spending is necessary. More often it is a good opportunity for lawmakers to leverage to spend money on things they wanted to spend on anyways, rewarding uh, political supporters, um, spending money on cronyism under the guise of fiscal stimulus that is supposed to help provide you know, a smoother transition out of the crises. Um, but these levels of spending are frankly um, uh, incredible. I still have trouble uh, grasping this graphic. I just want to point out to people in the back that my timer has not started, so I will go on forever unless we do that. <laughs> um, just like federal spending, except that also can't go on forever. So what you're looking at in this graphic is a comparison of three recent crises we had in the United States, the dot-com bubble in the uh, early 2000s, the Great Recession, which we all remember uh, just 10 or so years ago, and then, of course, the most recent pandemic. And the percentage next to each of these bars is the percentage of GDP that the overall fiscal stimulus consumed. So for the pandemic, we're looking at almost 25% of GDP. GDP, of course, is our gross domestic product, is everything we produce, goods and services in the economy. And the, the, for me, this is so crazy because this is basically an more than an entire year of federal spending. It's an entire, entire year's worth of the federal budget that we spend in additional uh, uh, yeah, spending on a variety of programs to try our help to try and help our businesses and um, uh, individuals weather the pandemic. But this spending was incredibly excessive. It wasn't well targeted, and it ultimately contributed to the 40-year inflation high that we're all still experiencing, and that um, lower and middle-income working families are suffering from the most. 
On the bright side, I believe that Washington lawmakers who for quite some time have fallen in love with the concept of modern monetary theory and the idea that government could just print money. If you look at recent um, academic studies, they tend to be extremely focused on oh, um, empty uh, free lunches and fiscal space that we might be able to create any way that the government can just spend without uh, repercussions or consequences. That is the wrong focus. And uh, we are now finally seeing the results of excessive spending, extremely high inflation. The Federal Reserve is fighting this inflation. Um, but Congress also needs to help. We cannot have a fiscal policy that is in direct contradiction to the Federal Reserve's actions to reduce inflation. During just the past two years of the Biden administration, um, President Biden and uh, his administration added five additional trillion in deficit spending uh, from their policies. This was already as the pandemic was waning and uh, they continued to keep adding to it. Actually, just this morning, I was reading that, um, as you know, we currently have a lame duck Congress, which is one of the most terrifying periods in uh, politics. Um, the, uh, the Democrats and Republicans uh, have apparently agreed to an overall level of discretionary spending. They're adamant uh, that they wanna pass an omnibus spending package. They should not because the, the policies that are currently being discussed in Congress that could be added to such a must-pass bill against the threat of a government shutdown, and most likely on December 23rd, when lawmakers are very eager to also get home to their families for Christmas, um, could add another $5 trillion in additional deficits. Um, so um, we've been telling Congress, do not legislate during the lame duck. It is the wrong thing to do. It is a dangerous thing to do. And you could actually exacerbate the inflation pressures the Federal Reserve is currently fighting and might actually trigger that recession next year. And then Congress, of course, again, will want to talk about additional fiscal stimulus, which would also be um, ill-advised. So our uh, vision for Congress is that the 118th Congress taking power in January must adopt a fiscal stabilization package that signals a credible commitment to America's investors, to people buying treasury bonds that finance this government deficit spending, uh, that we're committed to honoring our debts, that we are committed to having the ability within our economy and budget to honor those debts and to keep inflation under control. Because if we don't do that, we run the risk of a uh, fiscal crisis where investors might lose confidence in our ability to honor those debts at the agreed upon value. Um, it's often said that the United States can't default on its debt because we print our own money. Well, we can default on the value of the debt and you do that via inflation and that is um, even more uh, dangerous. So I'm, I said earlier that federal debt is too high and growing at an unsustainable rate. Um, Government spending has been excessive for quite some time. It didn't start during the pandemic, but certainly we saw a big spike during that period of time. We also should now demand that Congress return to pre-pandemic spending levels. There's, it doesn't make sense if you have a 20% um, rise in spending in order to fight a 100-year pandemic to then continue spending at those elevated levels. But that's exactly what Congress is talking about uh, right now. So under current projections, um, you, can, you can see we, we ran three projections of debt over the next 10 years. The CBO baseline is the lowest graph. Um, that is now outdated because we've had slower growth, 
higher inflation, higher interest rates, and then also, of course, new uh, spending by the Biden administration, including the uh, Increase Inflation Act. I think they called it something else. And, um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and um, forgive, uh, forgive student debts uh, because uh, upper and middle class earners need uh, more support to vote Democratic, apparently. Um, so we did an updated baseline, which is, the, uh, which is the orange graphic. Under current projections by CBO, we were uh, going to hit debt levels of 110% of GDP over the next 10 years. Now, um, under updated assumptions, it's going to be 116% over the next 10 years. We're roughly at 100% now. And uh, but once you account for more realistic policy assumptions, middle class tax cuts passed during the Trump administration, does anybody believe that Congress will just let those... Um, let those expire, I think that is highly doubtful. So once we account for those policies, we're looking at debt as a percentage of GDP reaching 138%. Um, and this is the debt borrowed in, mark in public markets. So this doesn't include Social Security and Medicare, which is another whole level of debt. Um, debt over the next 30 years is completely off the charts. Literally, it would be at 185% of GDP levels that um, other countries have not managed to sustain without first having a severe fiscal crisis that could involve austerity. Um, one country stands as an outlier, Japan. We are nothing like Japan. Most of Japan's government debt is financed by its own population. We do not have, um, we do not have that luxury. We rely on, on foreign investors for about half of our debt financing, and they have different expectations than your own population. Um, so what's driving all this spending? If we want to get spending under control, we have to know what's driving the growth in spending. Uh, this is a chart that looks at federal spending since the 1960s to today, and you can see a very clear trend that as the government shifted its focus from primarily focusing on the protection of justice and the security and sovereignty of our nation toward meeting um, myriad human wants and needs that you could possibly imagine from healthcare to welfare with the beginning um, in 1935 of social security and then um, the uh, welfare programs that followed in the decades after Medicare, of course, is, a, is another major one, Medicaid, and then a range of social and economic programs. A lot of them represent corporate welfare and handouts to nonprofit organizations that should earn their keep by, um, 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 by satisfying donor intent instead of knocking on the government's doors. But those are the programs that have been growing the fastest. And I think it is very clear why, because when you limit the size, when you limit the scope of the operations of government to very clearly defined goals that you can, that you can actually expect a government to meet, like protecting against uh, foreign invasion and domestic terrorism and uh, the protection of justice, then you can actually limit the size of government. But when you allow government to get into the business of trying to satisfy every imaginable human want and need, these are inevitably unbound, they are unlimited. So your government will also become unbound and unlimited. And that is uh, the situation we face and the, and the threat we face. So how do we get back to a government that is more focused on its core uh, priorities? It comes down to reducing the size 
and scope of government. And so for the uh, Congress taking power in January, we are setting a very strong uh, vision because that's something that lawmakers lack. I, when I joined Cato in August, I made it my mission to build a coalition of lawmakers and also allies in Washington and around the country that care about um, our nation's fiscal and economic health to build support for a vision to uh, return to fiscal responsibility. And what I have found is that there is a lack, a profound lack of a unified vision that um, people can get behind. But there's also profound hunger for that vision. What should we stand for? How can we actually um, change our fiscal trajectory? How can we pump the fiscal brakes and, uh, and, um, and shift gears in this scenario? By now, you've probably noticed I have an accent, so pardon my car references. I hail from the, from, uh, the land of uh, BMW, Bavaria, Germany. I'm very fond of those. And um, so what we're asking Congress to do in the next, um, in the next year is there is a, an opportunity to uh, correct course as we approach the debt limit. Sometime between March and May, the debt limit is an important wake-up call for Congress that confronts our lawmakers with the consequences of unsustainable spending, namely rising amounts of debt. And the debt limit also provides the political cover and leverage for lawmakers to adopt um, a budget plan. And it's worked many times in the past of all of the uh, deficit reduction deals that Congress has made since the 1980s. Um, every single one of them was associated with the debt limit. In many cases, the debt limit was a, a, a driver of that uh, deal. In other cases, a debt limit increase was attached to a budget deal. We need a budget deal. So um, looking at some targets that Congress could look at, if Congress wanted to balance the budget over the next 10 years, it would require about $14 trillion in spending reductions over the current trajectory. That seems like a really big number. If Congress instead set a more modest goal and said, let's just try to reach primary balance because interest costs are spiraling out of control, um, primary balance would mean we balance minus interest costs. So we pretend like those don't exist. Primary balance would require more than eight uh, trillion in spending reductions over the next 10 years. Um, our allies, the uh, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, has suggested that Congress should target just stabilizing the debt at the current level. I think that's not ambitious enough. As I mentioned, we are at debt at 100% uh, of GDP in terms of public debt, forward and credit markets. That is dragging down growth. It is reducing opportunity. It is um, cutting into the pocketbooks of American families. We should have a more ambitious goal than that that allows our economy to grow and to provide opportunities uh, for Americans all over the country. Um, but even at that um, less ambitious goal, we're looking at seven trillion in spending reductions over the next 10 years. Those sound like really big numbers. Somewhere between seven and 14 might be a good goal for Congress to land. But if you compare that to what we're projected to spend over the next 10 years, all of a sudden it doesn't look so big anymore. The federal government is projected to spend 72 trillion U.S. dollars over the next 10 years. So roughly seven trillion in any uh, given year. And so if we, if we tried to reduce that by seven trillion, that'd only be about 
I think we can do with 10% less, especially since we're talking about a reduction against the growth in spending. This is not like we're keeping spending flat. And I think Congress should start by um, reducing discretionary spending, which is within Congress's control, back down to 2019 levels, pre-pandemic levels. There's no reason to continue at these elevated pandemic spending levels other than to pay uh, favors and uh, to political supporters and uh, continue corporate welfare, which we cannot afford. And we also need to establish a commission for bipartisan entitlement reform because we are ultimately all in this together. And um, the primary drivers of our debt and deficit in the long run are healthcare and other uh, social programs, including Social Security and Medicare. Those two programs alone will make up more than half of the projected deficits over the next 10 years. So we cannot um, get to a, a budget balance or more sustainable uh, budget scenario without reforming these programs. Um, and I also think Congress should ban earmarks again because they are corrupt, they encourage greater spending, and to the degree that they've helped uh, grease the skits for more legislation, it's been legislation to increase spending, not to reduce it. So I don't think they're helpful. And um, I know that that's something that was discussed uh, in the House just yesterday. With that, I want to open the floor uh, to questions. Please, we'll have uh, um, folks in the room that will come to you and take your questions, and I'm really excited to hear what you think. Someone's coming to you with a mic. Thank you. Wonderful presentation. With respect to this chart, I'm just wondering uh, how that slope compares uh, if you measure it uh, on the basis of uh, GDP or per capita. Yes, it doesn't look very different. Uh, in this case, we did adjust for inflation. Um, yes, um, defense has remained relatively flat. Um, actually, it's declined as a percentage. Of, uh, of GDP overall, and um, social and economic programs, which includes the big healthcare programs, but also uh, transportation, welfare, et cetera, those are the big drivers of our federal, federal spending and then therefore debt. Supported by people from other countries. Is there any upside to that? Yes, I think there is some upside, but I think we've also become addicted to this idea. So one of the ways that the United States is unique is because uh, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. We can get a lot away with, um, with, with a lot looser fiscal policies than other countries like Greece, Argentina have been able to do in the past. Um, but that is also a responsibility that we have. And as the U.S. government becomes reckless with um, with spending that also undermines the faith in our currency and the ability of the dollar to play that role as a global reserve currency. And that can, um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a privilege, it's a benefit that we have, but it also, we cannot rest on our laurels and think that we can just get away with anything because it also in some ways makes us more dependent on um, other countries continuing to use the dollar. The last time I checked um, about one, uh, about 30% of every dollar created in the United States leaves our country and doesn't come back. It ends up uh, being used in global markets. It ends up uh, supporting other countries' currencies. So we get a lot of free stuff. 
Uh, it also explains part of our trade deficit, but, um, but uh, that is a precarious situation because when, if once there is an alternative currency that uh, investors and uh, different markets are um, intent on using and replacing in, in place of the dollar, we could, we could all of a sudden have um, uh, you know, hyperinflation, out of control inflation that the Federal Reserve could not get under control and that could uh, cause uh, tremendous chaos in our markets and undermine um, also our national defense. So, um, yes, there are short-term benefits, but there is also, we should be careful not to um, think that that, you know, will bail us out. Who, who on the uh, Hill is most concerned or, or most eager to do something on this front? You want me to name names? Sure. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've been making the rounds. I had about 25 Hill meetings since um, August, and I'm looking forward to meet a lot of the freshmen um, in January. And um, I was quite disappointed. There is, I found perhaps a handful, a very small group of uh, dedicated members that think about these issues. Um, there aren't very many, but uh, it's also, I think, a question of uh, leadership priorities. And we've also seen other organizations that have been guiding stars in Washington, D.C. Um, become distracted by identity politics and the culture wars and um, have not provided that leadership, which is why Cato has such an important opportunity and also responsibility to fill that vacuum and continue to, uh, to push for principled policies, limited government, balanced budgets, um, and... Uh, and policies that allow the economy to grow instead of um, the federal government crowding out private sector activity, including, um, including community activities. Um, so I can't name very many names. There isn't a leader like we had in the past that stands out. There's some lawmakers working behind the scenes on policy packages that if the opportunity comes, they might introduce. Um, many lawmakers aren't willing to put forth a big plan like a social security reform plan until they're about to retire. That's helpful in some ways, but uh, it doesn't push the ball forward. No, I miss him very much. Uh, we saw recently in the UK that the trust uh, cabinet proposed some policies that would have increased deficit spending and the bond market, uh, for the market for UK sovereign debt kind of had a mini freak out and uh, as a result they had to reverse those policies and actually reduce uh, deficit spending. Do you see any uh, prospect of that happening in the US or do you see something that could trigger that kind of market reaction in the US? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you raise a very valid point. I know this is something the administration has been looking at, especially if we're going to enter into a recession next year. Um, the fiscal space is going to be far more constrained than it was uh, during the Great Recession. And I think there is a much greater risk of rattling investors, um, which is why I'm so concerned also about this big omnibus package and all of the additional add-on policies that Congress is considering that could add to deficits about five more trillion over the next 10 years uh, when we already are at such high levels. Um, 
One key difference, again, is, of course, our status as a world reserve currency, which gives us more fiscal space than, say, the UK had. But it's also always so hard to predict what will rattle investors. So I think a policy of caution, especially given our already very high debt levels, um, is, uh, is warranted. And, you know, that's the one thing right now restraining uh, the administration and lawmakers is that concern that we could potentially rattle investors and that could quickly, you know, more, much more quickly and severely drive up interest rates, which could make it difficult to even run current policies. Um, but I also think that we cannot wait for that kind of a crisis to force lawmakers' hands. We should take more proactive actions to put the bu uh, budget on a more balanced and sustainable path so we can reassure investors that we are a good bet, we are a good investment. And this is particularly important because we are in a geopolitical competition with other nations for investment, for resources, and also for people. And um, I think we're all best served by the United States continuing to play that role, that stabilizing role in the world. And I think that's very much at risk. Good morning, and thank you for your help this morning. I appreciate your ideas. I have one question. It kind of comes from Ludwig von Mises in the human action kind of arena. And, and it's just that you have an excellent idea that we need to reduce the debt by the spending by $14 trillion over the next 10 years. How may we help you to open the eyes of our legislators to see this? In other words, everyone wants something that's free, and they don't like things taken away from them. How can we make this sexy? How can we make this sexy? I like your question. Um, yes, Milton Friedman has, I think, also uh, pointed this out, that we need to make it uh, easy for, um, we need to make it more attractive to do the right thing, and then the right thing will happen. I obviously am not quoting uh, literally here, but how can we make this more attractive? So lawmakers, the thing they care most about is re-election. And so they watch the polls and what drives their constituents to show up at the polls. And so that is a, that is a key aspect. What we saw during the midterm elections is that 78%, according to a political poll, of uh, voters were motivated by um, inflation and the economy. So those are big drivers. And, but not everyone necessarily understands to what degree excessive spending and uh, large debt accumulation by our government affects inflation and economic growth. So I think that is a key part. We have, uh, we have benefited from a very long run period of very low inflation where um, a lot of economists and also lawmakers got very comfortable with the idea that there might be free lunch policies out there after all. Maybe we can just drive up spending and deficits and as long as the economy grows faster than interest rates, we're golden. Um, that is no longer the case. We have hit that uh, threshold now and we need to um, adopt a, uh, a deficit package. To the degree that, that when that's happened in other countries, it's been uh, mostly the result of a, a, a bipartisan or multipartisan, if you will, nonpartisan commitment from, um, from both the population and lawmakers on all sides of the political spectrum. And then many of those deals would be uh, hashed out um, in private, in secret, but such that everyone could come back to their constituents with something um, to sell. And we've seen this successfully done in Sweden, in uh, Switzerland with the debt break. Uh, Germany has managed to balance its budgets. New Zealand has a, a very successful uh, story of 
um, both fixing its budget and administration at, uh, at once to get to a more sustainable scenario. Um, it is very helpful to have a strong leader to be focused on those issues that people trust and can get behind and that can unite the parties. I think we have a real vacuum in that space. Um, so hopefully someone will step up and maybe be sexy too to, uh, to help us get that, um, get that done. Thank you so much. I'll be around if you want to chat later.